Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes. And Steve, the first person I thought of when I saw this Benghazi reporting was you because of the amazing work that you've been doing. And I wanted to hear from you, what should we be amazed, astonished, surprised, outraged by? Well, thank you. Um, I, I think it's it's a bit of two different things. On the one hand, what this report does is it fills in all sorts of details that we haven't had. I mean, it's 800 pages. Trey Gowdy's approach to this report was to present the information to try to keep from offering too many conclusions and let people draw their own conclusions. There was an additional views report authored by two other Republicans that did include the conclusions, which was very effective, and we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. But, but on the big picture thing, I think it, it helps answer some of these major questions and fill in gaps in our For knowledge. Example. Well, the, 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 to me, the biggest thing is this deputies committee meeting that took place uh, at 7 o'clock on the night of September 11th, 2012, which Hillary Clinton attended. A deputies committee meeting is, by definition, a meeting of the second ranking person in each of these national security cabinet agencies, as well as several of the intelligence uh, agencies. So just the fact that Hillary Clinton showed up to that meeting um, was significant. Now, her defenders will say that's because she was so concerned and so involved that she showed up there. I think critics or skeptics would say she was concerned because she wanted to shape the story. She wanted right. to shape the messaging. And this meeting takes place as the attack is unfolding. And what comes out of the meeting is, uh, according to contemporaneous notes, what comes out of the meeting is a discussion that's focused less on the rescue and more on what I would consider to be unimportant issues, given the crisis at the time, such as whether if we sent troops, our Marines should wear their uniforms or go in civilian clothing so as to not look like we're invading Libya. Did or, I hear correctly that there were four basically costume changes during yes. the course of waiting to find out if the military would go in? Yes, that's right. And that that was part of the, con the, the discussion at this, at this meeting. Um, it was also focused on the video story. Uh, so even as the attack is unfolding, you have people at this White House-backed meeting, it was a secure teleconference meeting, talking about the video, sort of working on their messaging. And you just think in the middle of, of this kind of a crisis, is that what our leaders should be talking about? Uh, do we know now for sure that the Secretary of Defense or the President are both authorized and military action? Both. Both authorized military action. And the the, um, the authors of the report are actually um, sort of complimentary of President Obama in a way. He said, look, the president said, do whatever we need to do to help our people. Leon Panetta was more specific, said, I'm authorizing this, make this happen. That happens in the hours leading up to this seven o'clock Deputies Committee meeting. And I think one of the, the questions that this report does not answer, and I think it's an important question, is when you have the two leading um, people in, uh, in the chain of command giving orders to go, why didn't anybody go? As Trey Gowdy, Trey Gowdy said in, in his press conference, there was not one wheel turning towards Benghazi. How does that happen? And I think a lot of people, the people who have been investigating this, will point you to this deputies committee meeting. And what they can't say is Hillary Clinton or somebody in the deputies committee meeting said, absolutely don't go for any reason. But what they can say is provide what was discussed in this meeting, which were things like the messaging, which were concerns about getting permission from the Libyan government to, to send additional forces. But somehow or another, the orders given to go 
eventually became stop. What I can't figure out, I've never been a president of a, of a country, the many offers that I've had, but if my <laughs> ambassador were dead or missing and there were a full-on attack on you know where my ambassador was, I would— isn't that the point in the TV show or the movie where the president and the secretary of state all run into this room and you sit there and you yell at people until your people are out? I mean, why yes. weren't people's hair on fire? Yeah, I mean, that's this is what's interesting. And, and, you know, this is where the difference between what was happening in Washington and what was happening in Libya is so profound, so stark. In, in Washington, and, and look, I, I think we should be careful not to suggest that people took a cavalier attitude toward the possible death of... Uh, you know, these people, you, the, the Clinton defenders will say, you know, she she cared about this. The question I think you have to ask is what were people actually doing to try to prevent additional deaths? And I think the the spin that you hear is, well, you know, the, the attack was over. And it's such a short-sighted and ultimately unsatisfying piece of spin because nobody knew when the attack mm-hmm. was going to end. And, you know, Democrats and defenders of the administration will say, well, the, the attack, the original attack on the compound appeared to have been over. So we didn't feel the need to send anybody more. But you had subsequent attacks. You had an ambush on the way to the CIA annex. Right. You had the attack, of course, at the annex that took the lives of uh, there Glenn were five and attacks Ty, all Ty together, Woods. right? There were five different engagements, or if you want, whatever you want to call at them. At least that's the that's the conclusion of the report. You have other people. I mean, I have other intelligence sources that I've talked to who say you can't look at the attacks as distinct. It doesn't make sense to do that. Right. This was one attack. There were pauses in the attack, but it was one attack. If this attack had taken place in, say, remote Afghanistan. You would talk about it as one battle, and and it would you know there would be maybe operational pauses in the battle. Did you already know that it was Gaddafi guys who did us basically a personal favor and got our CIA folks out of the annex, and none of our allies showed up? Did you know that? Yeah, there was some. Well, there were indications that that was the case. That that the Libyans who helped us were part of this uh, somewhat friendly militia, former Gaddafi guys. But it's also the case that some of those people from the same militia were bad guys who may have compromised what, what was happening there. Um, but it, it wasn't the case that the, the CIA-trained folks that we had, the, the so-called rebels who we were right. counting on, were helping us. What else jumps out at you as something that a typical person who hears you know, this wave of media coverage, all of it almost seemingly partisan, what are some other nuggets of fact that they should grab? Yeah, I mean, I think of? you have to cut through and look at some of the context for, for what's happened here. One of the things that really jumped out at me, and, and again, we've known some of this, but but some of this was new, um, and it relates to Susan Rice's appearance on those Sunday talk shows that have been so much discussed over the past couple of years, where she, she tells a story that's false. We, we, we know it's false now. It was pretty clear it was false then. This report, I think, gives definitive proof that it was false. And there was, in this additional views section that was authored by uh, representatives Mike Pompeo and Jim Jordan, they created this timeline. I think it's devastatingly effective timeline where they laid out the private communications, emails, documents, uh, reports on meetings, the, the things that administration officials were saying to one another in private, never knowing that it would become public. And then what they were saying in public. And the two totally contradict each other. I mean, Hillary Clinton is, is blaming this on the video and telling Chelsea Clinton that it was an al-Qaeda attack. Right. And the next day telling the, the Egyptian prime minister that it had nothing to do with the film. Right. And there are examples of this that go on not just for the first day or two, but go on for literally weeks mm-hmm. where the administration is spinning this preferred narrative. And it, it shows that 
they weren't under some misimpression that the video story was true. They knew the video story was bogus, and they were out selling it anyway. It is a huge lie, and I think you know ultimately it's one of the, the most disgraceful aspects of this whole story. And you have a great post at theweeklystandard.com where you take some of that material so you can see it, because I printed it out so I could look yeah. at it, and it is just astonishing. It really is. It's astonishing, which brings us back to Hillary Clinton. You know, I... Um, Heard someone making the case that the reason why she felt the need to be involved in the story so early on, control the narrative, is because she was counting on Libya to be the her crowning achievement yes. as Secretary of State. Well, given how crappy, even take up Benghazi, right. given how crappy things worked out in Libya, if that's your crowning achievement— you must not have a lot of... A, it's like saying the finest car in your car lot is the AMC Pacer. <laughs> the, the jalopy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really is a, a, a reflection. For, forget her actions that day. The whole Clinton era as Secretary of State is being kind about it, unimpressive. What they were trying to do is avoid exactly the argument that you're making. And it's why I think it's one of the reasons that she was so invested in spinning this the right way. I mean, ultimately, no amount of spin is going to be able to cover the disaster that is current Libya now. But and, and we don't have to assume how important this is to Hillary Clinton or was viewed by Hillary Clinton and her associates. It's in the report. Jake Sullivan, one of her top foreign policy advisors, authors an email in which he says, this is your issue. You've owned it. You've led on it. This is Hillary Clinton's signature issue is Libya. Sidney Blumenthal, who Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. still to this day claims wasn't <laughs> an advisor, but he was being paid $200,000 by a pro-Clinton group and offering her advice, and she was seeking uh, his advice. Sidney Blumenthal wrote uh, an email as well where he said, you have to stand out and get out in front of this and take credit for the success that Libya will become. So you can see if you're building your future argument, potentially as a run for president of the United States, around this policy and it collapses in failure, you can see why she would scramble so much to try to correct that. What will be the lingering impact of this? Will there be a short-term political impact? And then will there be any long-term impact on Hillary's legacy, the media's legacy for the way they've chosen to not uh, cover this? You think about how Candy Crowley impacted a presidential race by throwing herself on the story in the middle of a debate. Uh, what, what do you think now, you've got a few years at it, where, what, what will the Benghazi story be when it's all over? You know, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think it will certainly have, um, we will understand it better because of all of the facts that this committee in particular was able to provide. It's no longer the case that you have to take, you know, the, you have to take my reporting as gospel or you have to, you know, watch Fox News to, to understand what happened. What this report does is it takes all of these facts and it puts them in the words of the Obama administration officials. So you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to listen to Michael Graham. You can go and see what these officials were saying at the time, and that's what I think makes it so devastating and why the report is so credible. On the media question, we don't know yet, uh, but there are indications that the media long ago dismissed the significance of the story. I remember covering this the the hearing where Hillary Clinton appeared. She said things that were categorically untrue any number of times, and the media just didn't care. They cared about the performance exactly. aspect of this, in part because a lot of the, the people covering those hearings were reporters who were signed to cover her, her presidential campaign and weren't people who had covered 
Benghazi. So you have multiple examples of her saying things that are demonstrably false. And the story that comes out of there is, wow, didn't she perform well? I think this makes that a lot harder to do. And you have additional information that this report produces that demonstrates exactly how political the Obama White House was on this. And I'll I'll leave you with one final example. I mean, Susan Rice appearing on the Sunday shows to sell this narrative to the American people. She was the third choice. Hillary Clinton was the first choice. She declined. I think she declined because she didn't want to own it. Right. Then they went to Tom Donilon, who was the national security advisor at the time. He declined. He didn't want to do it. Then they go and they pick out the U.N. ambassador, obscure choice who doesn't know this issue, isn't involved in the policymaking on this issue. And she is briefed by whom? Not by the FBI, not by the CIA, not by the DOD, but by Ben Rhodes, who's working for the president at the time and who was a veteran of the Obama political team, and by David Pluff, who's working hard 56 days in advance to get the president of the United States reelected. So the political team sends Susan Rice out on the Sunday shows to make a political case. And she happens to have made a case that was largely false. And I think this, this report for history, and I think this is one of the areas in which it's, it's important, makes very clear that what they were doing was political and that the story that she told was false. Steve Hayes, thanks so much for the great coverage you've done on this topic and for joining us for this podcast. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.